new CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome back into the Lions 24-7 podcast. The season officially in the books as we address Saturday night. Just as we were recording, Penn State putting out official confirmation that they would pass on any bowl game opportunities. Uh, bowl games now underway already uh, as of Monday. So the uh, college football postseason rolls on. Penn State not a part of it. Approximately two dozen programs not electing to go to a bowl. 16 bowl matchups in total have been canceled thus far. Uh, there's a few Big Ten teams taking part in bowls. Wisconsin versus Wake Forest in the Mayo Bowl. Iowa versus Missouri in the Music City Bowl. Indiana versus o- Old Miss in the Outback Bowl. Northwestern versus Auburn in the Citrus Bowl. And then, of course, Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl against Clemson for a national semifinal. So five of the 14 programs out of the conference in a year where everybody was eligible for football uh, and, and into bowl action play. Five out of those 14 only are participating. As we stated, Penn State, not one of them. The team has scattered. They've, they've reunited with loved ones, I would imagine, by now, getting some home cooking and, and just enjoying some time away and probably decompressing and putting things in perspective. We're going to do our best to do that here on a post-game uh, roundtable, a, post, a post-season roundtable discussion. The post-games are over. Sean Fitz with me, of course, and also Mark Brennan, uh, longtime Penn State beat veteran and, of course, our Lions 24-7 colleague. Gentlemen, we got plenty to discuss, and we we kind of thought we might still be talking about a game at this point, an unknown opponent, maybe Wake Forest it would have been in this Mayo Bowl. Um, but, but here we are, and it's time to – Kind of collect our thoughts a bit after these nine games and uh, just a bizarre roller coaster ride going back into the spring. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a season. I mean, you think about where it's you know how it started and stopped, and you can certainly criticize the Big Ten all you want, and I think they certainly deserve it the way that that uh, you know really took off and spun out of control and you left yourself scraping at the end to change rules and everything like that. And don't have a big problem with the, the rule changes and stuff. Cause you want to get your team into the playoffs, but uh, man, what a mess, what a mess that was. And, and that's probably how we're going to remember 2020 is uh, the year as a whole in the Penn state football season. Just uh, eh, it's one big mess. Yeah. I think they were really short sighted when you look at the way the season ended, especially for Penn state. Um, and, and it's not just Penn state. It was, it was all the teams in the big 10, but you were looking at a situation where final week of the season, you're preparing for a game. You're dealing with uh national signing day and, and the players have finals. So I guess in hindsight, it probably wasn't that much of a surprise when all of that's over. The players take a deep breath and and vote and say, you know, hey, probably not doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go to a bowl. But it's one of those things touching on what Sean said. I think there are a lot of areas where you can be critical of the Big Ten. And I don't think when they were deciding to start the season when they did that they took into account what was going to happen in the middle of December with everything that was going to be thrown at everybody. But one thing I've hit on over and over, uh, as much as you want to talk about Penn State's ups and downs during the season, what an unbelievable job they did with the whole COVID thing. When you look around the nation and you see the teams that have missed games, uh, for, for them to be able to play every single game, I thought that was just absolutely amazing. 
strong effort on their part, a bit of luck involved there with who you're matched up week by week because it only would have taken one opponent to deal with an outbreak to shut you down for the week and, and take a game off your schedule. Penn State, Rutgers, ultimately the only Big Ten conference programs that played all nine of nine. There were no built-in bye weeks because the season was rushed out late. Um, so you actually saw nine Big Ten teams end up playing seven games or less over the course of this season. Of course, the Big Ten champion, Ohio State, to a lot of controversy and did not get to that threshold, but they are in the college football playoff. Um, Mark, you mentioned that 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 Penn State did a really strong job with this. I, I'm going to be curious going into the offseason, some things we're going to maybe hear and, and learn uh, on the record, off the record about the impact of what we've kind of heard as a conservative approach. James Franklin talked about the really difficult nature of trying to serve two masters, one of which is is being a, a head coach for a, a football program that is expected to go out and win every week and, and try to compete for a national champion. The other is being the caretaker of 100-plus student-athletes, a very large support staff that is with you every day, and ensuring their health and safety. He's always prioritized that. Um, along the way, but I, I think it's going to be inter- interesting to hear how those two kind of uh, married up. And, and the other thing that we haven't heard, guys, um, you know, perhaps you've heard some whispers and, and some conversations, but we did not get any players on the record about this decision. The way Penn State did it, it was pretty calculated on their part, pretty good, pretty well executed, I would say, as well. They didn't put their players under pressure. The players didn't address the, the bowl decision after the game. Trust me, we tried with every guy that was on one of those Zoom calls, what Jahan Dotson, Will Fries, uh, Keaton Ellis, uh, uh, several others. They weren't touching it. They weren't going to talk about it until a decision was was reached and then announced. Uh, James Franklin basically said, hey, we're going to have a conversation after this press conference and, and, and we'll let you know. And within really less than an hour after the players were done with these Zoom calls, uh, all of a sudden there was the word they were done for the year. And as far as right now, recording on Tuesday afternoon, we don't have any kind of press conference, end of the season deal set up with James Franklin, who I'm sure has reunited with his family by now. Um, there's nothing on the books that's going to give us any kind of details on how the decision was reached. We, we certainly have a lot of respect for why it was reached, and, and it's the decision that was made internally for the program and sounds like with the players spearheading it. But we're curious for the details, and, and we're going to be curious to, to get some feedback on that. But as of right now, because of the way the whole media structure was set up on Saturday, it's kind of like they made a decision, they got into their cars, they left campus, and and we're kind of waiting for the next opportunity to, to speak with some, some people about this. Yeah, it's weird because uh, we're kind of creatures of habit as well. So we're used to having the structure throughout a season uh, or throughout a, a season of each game week doing press conferences on every single or whatever day it may be. And to have that not there is kind of uh, discombobulating for us at this point. But, you know, the one thing I'm going to be interested to hear, uh, because all the players that we talked to in the weeks leading up had indicated that, yeah, you know, if they had an opportunity to play a bowl, they wouldn't mind doing it. Uh, I think the one dynamic and the one very understandable dynamic was James Franklin's situation. You know, how much did the players take into account wanting to get their their coach back with his family? And I'm not, I would not suggest for a second that he pressured them. I don't think that happened at all. But, you know, players love their coach. And, and I think there was probably some element of that. And, you know, at the end of the day, out what what difference would going to the Dukes Mayo Bowl have 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 really meant an extra week of practice maybe for us being able to go into the hospitality suite to the wall of condiments uh I don't know what it would have you know what difference it would have really made for this team so I think the fact that they decided to to do what they did 
I have absolutely no problem with it. And I also, when you look across the Big Ten, and, and again, you see no teams with losing records going to bowls. I think everybody realizes, listen, if you have a winning record, you ought to go to a bowl. If you have a losing record, you probably shouldn't. There you go, slandering the Mayo Bowl again. Don't need any of that around here. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I get it. I think it's it, it, you can probably liken this to this team kind of holding their breath the entire season, you, you, know, you can't slip up, you can't go out, you can't do all these kind of things that you like, and then you get a chance to just let go and and, and breathe a little bit. And I think they're going to certainly take advantage of that. Of course, when they come back, they're going to have remote classes and everything like that, but it's not going to be the strict everyday testing. Every day you have to you know watch every move you make, um, just sort of judge everybody that you interact with because how's that going to set off a chain reaction? So I think that you know the players, while they probably wanted to get out there, play a little football, you know, spend one more week of practice or whatever, that's fine. But you know, I I don't think anyone's too torn up about. It. In fact, the you know the people that we've seen posting in the last twenty four to forty eight hours, going home, seeing family, uh, stopping off at Wingstop if you're Antonio Shelton. I mean, just all that kind of stuff is is really what what you would take for granted during that uh, that time when they're just kind of sealed in. And I think that that, that chance to breathe was a big uh, a big factor in in just kind of letting it go. Going back to October, even here on the podcast, I had been casting a lot of doubt on the feasibility of just a full normal bowl structure. Clearly, that was eroded over the course of the last couple of months. 16 total bowl games canceled by the end of it all. Probably could have canceled a few more, to be honest. But I, as Penn State was losing early, and, and you're thinking some of the big matchups, certainly the college football playoff and the near six, as those were going off the table, you're starting to think, you know, does it make any sense? And at 0-5, you're thinking, does Penn State even get a chance? The feel of the way they ended the season versus how we thought they may have ended the season, basically limping away from campus with their tail tucked between their legs and their head down, that wasn't this. This was more of a four-game win streak. Um, you, you feel the optimism, you're feeling the momentum, maybe you go out and make it five and five. And I think that's something that was more important to be honest to, to the fan base more than it was to, to maybe the players of, of trying to be four and five or five and five versus four and five and maintaining that streak of, of not having a losing record. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's, they were able to leave campus and go home and, and, and do these things with their families with uh, just a different aura about it than, than really what we anticipated coming out of November into December. Um, it wasn't murderer's row down the stretch, those final four games, but I don't think anybody really had a murderer's row on their schedule in the Big Ten Conference this year. You know, only four teams won more games than Penn State on the schedule. There were a lot of flameouts across the league from programs that were expected to take a step forward. So, it, I mean, you can harp on the, the, the lack of success for some of the teams they were able to beat at the end of the season, but point to a Big Ten team and tell me where they had a big stretch of really impressive wins in the conference this year. Yeah, I also wonder how much, um, you know, the students haven't been on campus for weeks now uh, and had not been on campus for weeks. I guess they everybody would be gone by by this point. But uh, to, to just be isolated like that, I can't even imagine. I mean, going through it during the season had to be or when when the students were actually here, that had to be tricky enough. But then to be kind of, uh, you know, on this desolate campus, nobody around. I'm sure that played into it a little bit. And listen, hopefully everybody goes home and uh, enjoys the holiday. And I agree with what you say, Tyler. I think you end on a high note and maybe you're able to take that momentum into next season. Whereas you go to a bowl, maybe you lose some of that juice. Maybe half the team was thinking, boy, I'd rather be home for Christmas at this point. Uh, you know, maybe guys who aren't playing would rather not even be there. Uh, so the fact that they did it, I, I really have absolutely no problem with it. And I do think they could carry some momentum into next season.
And you think about it, I mean, how much of this team actually gets onto the field? You know, you're, you're not just talking about taking votes from 22 starters or 35 guys that are regulars out there or something like that. You know, you've got 100 and some guys on this team. So I'm sure that that probably factored into it as well. Well, yeah, and they also cleared a bench in that Illinois game. That was the first time they were able to get a lot of those walk-ons and and really deep reserves in there. So to me, what what better, you know, how good are those walk-ons, how good are those kids feeling coming out of that game to finally get on the field? It was a bit of a party atmosphere down the stretch. We haven't seen much of a party atmosphere for Penn State in any game. Usually you get one of those in, in early September against a non-conference opponent. And at the end of the day, these these guys walk off that field for the final time in 2020 with 42 unanswered points in their fourth consecutive win. And maybe more so the momentum, you get pride. You get to take pride back to your hometown. I think family and friends are always going to be proud of you. You're playing at that level of, of college football. But there's a while there where, where Penn State's in focus as the most disappointing team in Power 5 football, falling to 0-5 for the first time. You get to leave campus uh, with that four game win streak and whether you're a guy who's wrapping up your college career or one of the many young freshmen who is going to be a freshman again next year because of the NCAA rules you get to be proud of, of the way you responded to that this season I think the coaches can be proud of the way they responded um, and you learn something about yourself rather than seeing that spiral continue we had talked about the ability for this team at 0-5 to avoid mass out uh, opt-outs I mean I think there's a lot of programs across the country and we saw it this year where you struggle like that and you're getting to that stage of the season, the holidays are coming up, you start to see guys, whether it's because they can go off to the NFL or just because they've had enough and they want to pull the plug, opting out here and there. Didn't see it with this program. So I think there are some points of pride uh, that they can take away and move forward with. And uh, I was going to switch gears to, to the offseason that's already underway, but if either of you have any other comments on on kind of the, the finality of, of what has happened in the last 72 hours, go for it. No, I just can't wait to talk about or to not talk about this subject anymore and focus on the offseason, focus on football. And when we get back, you and I, Tyler, when we get back to normal podcasting about actual football, that's when I feel when we're at our best. And I can't wait for that. No doubt. I agree. All right. Well, we'll be back next week, by the way. This is our one episode. I probably should have let off with that um, for the Christmas holiday week. So we hope everyone enjoys it. This will be it for us. Then we'll be back next week and uh, we'll get back into our, our two podcast episode uh, per week kind of rhythm and have plenty to talk about. And because it will be a busy offseason and that offseason started quickly for the Nittany Lions. Um, you know, but by the end of Sunday, we learned that Pat Fryermuth, uh, preseason All-American tight end, named Big Ten tight end of the year, despite uh, playing about half of the season, declares for the NFL as expected. It's something that he could have done last year. It's something that we thought he might opt out and do and maybe go the Micah Parsons route. Did not do that. Was a two-time team captain. By the first game of his junior year, he was the all-time uh, record holder for tight end touchdowns at Penn State. You two combined have seen a ton of tight end talent come through the program. Uh, where do you put Pat Fryermuth in that conversation? We know that he's made quite the case from a statistical standpoint, and I think in, the, in this year of all years, really showed his medal as a team leader. Well, I'll, I'll, think, go, I'll go first yeah. on that one because Mark has seen one of the tight ends that would be in this discussion, or, or at least I've, I saw him too, but he remembers one of the tight ends that be in this discussion. Um, but in terms of all around tight ends, I think he was he was better than Jasicki. Um, Mike had, was phenomenal as a sort of a split wide receiver type guy. Um, but in terms of what you ask him to do, everything blocking and, you know, playing across the formation and and, and Mike for everything that he did well, certainly struggled with his blocking. Um, I, I think in terms 
terms of being an all-around tight end, is the best, probably the best that I've seen. And that's that's a high bar right there because Mike Mike was phenomenal. Obviously, some some of the older guys are in there, and I really really am very high. And this is going off in a different direction on the guys that are in there afterwards. Actually, I think Brenton Strange might be a better blocker than Pat Fryermuth, which is 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 really saying something. So I I mean I, it's been a pleasure to watch. And honestly, when that came through um, on Sunday afternoon, or it was yeah I think it was Sunday afternoon, um, I was kind of surprised because not not because he declared to the NFL. You just feel like it was such a formality that you you really just kind of were taken aback by there's an announcement for this because you know he's kind of been out of sight out of mind for the last month month or so. And you're like, oh, that's right. He's not in the NFL already. So uh, I think that's a testament to what kind of player Pat Fryermuth was um, a big 10 tight end of the year. I know that was something that was very important for him. Obviously he's not going to win the Mackey award, but still um, just a phenomenal career, a guy that came in, just kind of took the bull by the horns and was just fantastic from day one. Um, and that's really, if you think about where this tight end position was when he got here um, versus where it's at right now, that's, that's a complete 180. Tyler Bowen's done a hell of a job with that. Um, Penn State, whoever's had the offensive coordinator job at Penn State has been able to get the tight end, the ball, you know, basically since uh, Joe Moorhead came here. So it's developed, it's, it, it's become a destination for tight ends. Um, it, it, the recruiting has really sort of taken care of itself for the most part. Um, they really like Dinkins, but of course, uh, this year is kind of an anomaly in terms of what, uh, uh, Khalil Dinkins, sorry, uh, in terms of what, uh, they were able to do with getting guys on campus, but it's just really become one of those programs that you just look to at a position where guys kind of flock to, they've got two great ones in 2022 and it's, I, I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. And Pat Fryermuth is, is maybe the biggest reason for that. Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at Pat Fryermuth from a historical perspective, uh, the most obvious guy to compare him to would be Kyle Brady. Uh, I think Pat is a better receiver than Kyle Brady was, although I'm not sure Kyle Brady was asked to do as much in the receiving game as as Fryermuth was. Uh, Kyle Brady, to me, was, was a superior blocker to any tight end that, that I've seen. I mean, he did some things against Simeon Rice in Illinois in that game that were just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, it's difficult, though, to, to compare among many other players than that. I mean, you mentioned Gasicki. I mean, he clearly, I think, was a better receiver uh, but could not really block at that level. And then when you go back further, the Mickey Schulers and those type of people, they just weren't asked to do nearly as much in the receiving game. Ted Qualick back in the 60s was, but I, he seemed like he was more of a, a wide receiver. But if I had to go for the best combination of blocking and catching, I think Pat Fryermuth would would be the guy, even though he's only played three years. And and, and his and yeah, and his last season or this last season, I mean, he put up numbers. He was the Big Ten tight end of the year. Yeah, he could have been a lot better with with some some decent serving up to him. And that that's I think the th- the thing when when we look back at Pat Fryermuth's career. And not that we were cheated out of a year or anything like that, but this season could have been really, really awesome for him. And it's unfortunate that it did not go in that direction because of injury and associated or other other things. You know what's uh, kind of you know what's kind of weird though, guys, is that it almost seemed like early in the year Sean Clifford was trying to force him the ball too much, and it, you know nobody wanted to see Pat Firemuth get banged up, but ultimately I think Clifford, when Firemuth wasn't there started to spread the ball around and be become more comfortable with all these other receivers. So again, no, nobody wanted to see Pat Fryermuth get hurt, but I think it forced uh, Clifford to do some other things and ultimately ended up making him better. Now, obviously 
if Fryermuth would have been there all year, who knows what kind of numbers he would have put up even in a nine-game season. But I think old long-term, uh, tough situation for him. But now the young guy has got a lot of reps that, that Sean was talking about. And I think that position is looking really strong uh, years into the future. And you look at the elevated performance out of the wide receiver group, particularly the, with those top two guys, Parker Washington and Jahan Dotson, that really helped shoulder the blow. I don't know what this offense would have really looked like last year if you took Pat Frymuth out of the equation and was KJ Hamler and kind of a, a, a group of not very productive at all wide receivers around him. Um, really quickly, one thing I'll remember about Pat, aside from all the highlight real stuff, uh, was his dedication to this program because over the final four or five games, there he was, some bad weather games in the mix with the big jacket, arm in a sling, talking to his guys on the sideline. You're talking about a player who you know has ambitions and and is, you know, when you look at the mock drafts, is looking like a top 50, you know, second round pick at that point. Um, there's a lot that he could just shift focus to and say, hey, thanks for the memories, Penn State. I'm out of here. I'm going home. He stuck with it, uh, abided by all the policies he's got his guys got to deal with, and you know I think he really showed uh, why he was elected as a as a true sophomore, which is a rare situation as a team captain, and then extended that into his third year on campus. So and, as and, much as the highlight reel stand out, that to me, seeing him stick with it in this year of all years while injured and knowing that he wasn't going to play another Penn State game, I think that says something. And because of that, when we take a look at his, uh, you know his his reputation with Penn state fans and his legacy at Penn state, he's going to be on a different level than Micah Parsons. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. He's going to be one of those guys that's certainly beloved Micah more talented than anybody that's been through here. But when you, when you take a look at what people are going to remember about this season, about this team, about these players, they're going to hold Pat Fryermuth in, in high regard and, and, and maybe not so much Micah. Well, and he also, I, I mean, mean, when the whole big 10 thing was in disarray there, not not one person would have blamed Fryermuth for 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 taking off at that point. I mean, no, not one person would have. And the other thing I'd like to 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 to, to touch on with Pat Fryermuth, and I'm not sure if our listeners care about this or not, but I think it speaks to his personality. I remember when they had all those redshirt, all those uh, they would have been either redshirt freshmen or sophomores in the spring of their second year when they finally made them all available. Do you remember that? I touched yeah. base with somebody in the program and said, uh, hey, who should who should I talk to? I don't know all these guys. I mean, everybody knew Micah from interviewing him during the recruiting process. But I touched base with somebody and said, hey, who are the good personality people to talk to? And somebody said, Fryermuth. And, and I went and talked to him. And listen, he, he wasn't the uh, outgoing, dynamic personality that Micah Parsons was with the media. But always good answers, you know, thought things through was great with us, was always available. Uh, that, I, I, that really meant a lot. And I think that speaks to somebody's character. Again, I don't know if our listeners care about that, but the way he carried himself with the media, especially during some tough times this year, I thought was fantastic. And I, I was almost hoping that would make him available at some point, uh, before he made his decision, but hopefully we can track him down along the way as he goes, uh, getting ready for the draft. I always felt talking to Pat, and this extends back to his, his the end of his high school career, like you were talking to a, a, almost a young coaching assistant or a coach in the making. That's kind of the way he 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 would you know create that communication with it. it wasn't a lot of uh, wasn't a lot of unnecessary uh, you know lofty stuff that he would throw out your way, but he um, he would have a, a pretty open conversation, a mature conversation. Um, and you know, he I think he's going to be a good one at the next level. Uh, certainly has to work through whatever he's dealing with right now. And, 
uh, get back to the full strength, but he's got a good opportunity there um, and, and projected as, you know, a top two or three tight end off the board as of now for next year's draft. Um, the, the addition that we've already seen, there's a, a notable subtraction, but we've already seen an addition and that's faster than I anticipated, at least at running back uh, of all spots, uh, Baylor running back, John Lovett, uh, tr- a grad tra- transfer uh, originally from South Jersey um, ends up signing, picking Penn state uh, breaking broken by Sean Fitz here on Monday. Um, a, a kid who's going to add to a running back room that has four scholarship running backs uh, set to return in 2021, barring anything unforeseen with Devin Ford, Noah Kane in their third years, and then second year players, Kaziah Holmes and Kevon Lee. Um, Sean, what was your initial reaction to this? Uh, you were out in front and, and this is a guy who he started five games that he played for, for the Baylor bears this year, uh, uh, 78 yard touchdown, uh, 78 yard, one touchdown game against Kansas on September 26th was, was the highlight of that. Uh, but this is a guy who made his decision quickly and certainly Penn State uh, had their had him on the radar preceding all this. Yeah, if you take a look at what Andy Frank and James Franklin had to say on signing day about the guys that they would bring in, maybe they bring in a guy with a relationship that you know that they had recruited him. So an interesting one because they brought him onto campus in October of his senior year. They offered him, but they kind of played touch and go there for a while. And in the meantime, between when they wanted to get him on campus for an official visit in January and the time that you know eventually they offered Journey Brown in December. I mean, that that spot kind of went away. So they did have a bit of a relationship with him. Um, you know, people know people. That's how it works. And, you know, when he came onto the market, he was one of the first guys that I looked at just because it doesn't make a ton of sense bringing in a grad transfer, you know, on the surface at running back. You've got four guys that are slated to come back. All, all four guys have played. Um, obviously, you want to get Noah Kane back and as healthy as possible. Um, but at the same time, you are not tying up a scholarship. They lost out on Deshaun Morrell to, to UCLA last week, but you're not tying up a scholarship for four or five years in a running back. And that's something that is intriguing to me. You can bring in a guy. He's been in a college weight program. He's led Baylor in rushing a couple of times. So he's got a experience. He's got a little bit of a different game than than some of the backs on your roster. And he can bring something, you know, that can make an immediate uh, dent in your depth chart, an immediate impact on what you're trying to do on the field. And in the same light, if he doesn't, he's gone after a year. So all of a sudden you're trying to figure out different ways to uh, build your scholarship roster. But at the same time, to me, it, it, it's really interesting. It goes back to, you know, this is not the NFL, obviously. This is not the draft and free agency, but you want to build the the core of your franchise through the draft, through high school recruiting, obviously. And then you want to fill in those gaps with free agents. And I think that's an interesting way to, to, to put it. You got a guy coming in here for one year. Is he going to share carries? Is he going to start? Who knows? But he's he, he's shown at the Division One at the FBS level that he can come in and play. And that can give you something in the long run. And like I said, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But you've got space. You've got scholarships. You've got uh, space under those initial counters and that hard cap. I expect Penn State to be active in this uh, transfer portal. It's not a situation where a running back is going to take a scholarship from a quarterback or take a scholarship from a defensive end or a, or a safety or anything like that. It's a situation where you're adding to uh, different positions to make yourself. You saw how quickly things could fall apart at that position this year, and you're adding guys to that that you know just to to make sure that, or at least to try to make sure that that doesn't happen next year. 
This would, to me, uh, on the surface, appear to be Penn State's most notable pickup uh, using the transfer portal uh, of the transfer portal era. Let's put it that way. Um, in terms of a guy who accomplished something at, at the Power Five level, I know Jordan Stad had, had a strong freshman year at Virginia Tech as a walk-on, but we're talking about a guy who was the leading rusher for a team that was in Big Twelve title contention last year. Um, Eighteen hundred plus rushing yards, seventeen touchdowns to his credit. Six foot, two hundred twelve pounds, evaluated as a four-star athlete coming out of high school. Um, you had uh, George Campbell, a former five-star wide receiver, high four-star wide receiver, uh, planning on enrolling, ended up not working out with him from an, uh, from an academic standpoint, ends up at West Virginia. He was a notable name, but even he didn't really accomplish as much as Lovett accomplished at Baylor. So I do wonder if this is going to be, as we heard last week, uh, an active uh, search through the transfer market. It's an interesting way to start it off because, again, Stout has proven to be a big-time pickup for them, and he was impressive as a freshman. But this one is kind of stands on a, on its own from the last few years with the portal being a thing in terms of a guy who does bring some credibility and cachet at this power five level into your program. Yeah, two a couple things on this. Number one, you know, as Sean touched on, you don't have to go too far back to see where Penn State was in a situation where it had to play fourth and fifth string running backs. Uh, number two, the things that we heard last week. Um, from Andy Frank, from James Franklin. I think Terry Smith mentioned it as well. You know, they're, they want to bring guys in who are going to compete and make people better. You know, this isn't people coming in to be, to, to be necessarily backups. Now, this may end up that way if, if, if you know, Noah Kane comes back completely healthy. Uh, but you look at the positions they're talking about, DB and D-end, uh, at this point, they want guys to come in and contribute and to also make everybody else better. And there's something to be said for that. I mean, we saw early in the James Franklin tenure when they didn't have competition on the offensive line, there were guys who just mailed it in. And, and I'll say it. I mean, Donovan Smith was a guy who had no competition and was able to, to play at whatever level he really wanted to because they had no ch- no choice but to play him. And then, you know, he ends up not having a particularly good season, whatever year it was, goes and ends up almost being a first-round NFL draft pick. So it's really important if you're going to have guys who are going out in the transfer portal to get guys coming in who are going to be able to compete. And the other thing is, I think it's Sean touched on this as well. You You have guys who have been in college weight programs who know what it's like to go to class and to and, and to juggle all of those different things. So this is a big difference from bringing in true freshmen. And I think it's something they're going to have to do and everybody's going to have to do. Yeah. And if you look at the potential impact of a guy like Deshaun Morell, who's going to take a couple of years to get on the field anywhere in, and that's not even just taking into account what Penn state's backfield, uh, you know, has in front of it. And that's something where, you know, you look at one or two years into the future, how, how big of this impact is this impact going to be? And given what we've seen from the transfer portal error of guys that only stick around for a year or two and don't really find out and stick it out. And that's another conversation in itself. I mean, you've got yourself a guy that can come in and, and play, play right away that's going to be an upgrade and it's going to be uh it's going to be a win for that and, and you'd love to have obviously they would have loved to have the chum morell um, but at the same time i mean this makes sense and this is also when you take into account other guys in the transfer portal they were looking at mark anthony richards a guy out of auburn who was uh, i believe a, a class of 2019 uh they recruited him very hard he had an official visit has a uh you know a a relationship with Jaywan Sider, um, but at the same time, he ties up three or four years of scholarship time. So that's going to be something you see taken into account. 
they try to add these guys on the tail end of their career that you can get out and you can go. Now, these guys are going to count against the 85, um, not like uh, not like the situation where if uh, if Brisker or Shelton or somebody that just graduated state, I mean, they're, they're going to count against this number. Um, but at the same time, you're, you're really not playing up against it. And the way that we've seen the attrition go, especially in the last few years and, and what we expect in this offseason, you've got space. You might as well make it happen. And like I said, the running backs is not the only guy that they're going to try and bring in. It's just because you're taking John Lovett as a running back doesn't mean you're you're not looking at other positions, and you know it doesn't mean that you know you you are only focused on running back. I mean you're you're still going to look at DN, still going to look at safety. I think every position, including quarterback, of course, since that's what you're listening for, including quarterback is going to be an option for them. Maybe short of tight end, just because of what we've seen from those those tight ends. I'm going to call my shot now. It's not a very bold one, but I think we're going to get an or or a couple of ors at the top of that running back depth chart next time we see one for 2021. You've got Noah Kane missing the essentially the entire season after he missed significant time as a freshman. A lot of questions about his ability to get out there, uh, be the guy for a full season. I think he's got some some questions to answer as a junior. Uh, I'm sorry, as a third-year sophomore. Um, and then Devin Ford, we didn't see him uh, in three of those four games that this team won. Uh, part of that was uh, obviously a family tragedy, but then it must have come out of that Rutgers game banged up in some way, shape, or form, was not involved. And that opened the door for Kevon Lee, Keziah Holmes, uh, to step up. Keziah Holmes finished off on a, on a bit of a bright spot there. And, of course, Kevon Lee ends up leading the team in rushing. Now you throw in Lovett. A lot to work through there and a lot to like as well for, for J1 Sider, um, a mix of former four stars uh, all over the place uh, coming together there. Um, defensive end was a spot that James Franklin specifically teased as, as a place Penn State was going to be looking at in the transfer market. He also said defensive back, didn't mention running back. Um, but we now know that Shane Simmons is not going to be part of that defensive end equation, which would kind of escalate the need for a defensive end. The former five-star prospect who remains the, the top-ranked defensive Lyman signed by James Franklin during his time at Penn State. Uh, he moves on. He's going to focus on business. Uh, we've heard from a lot of guys in this program about how sh- uh, Shane is well-suited for success beyond Happy Valley and beyond the football field. If that's what he chooses to do. Sounds like that is his plan, which Shaka Tony, I think, unless he stuns us, is also going to be out of the equation, not capitalizing on a, on a bonus senior season. He's a fifth-year guy right now. Um, you've got Jason Away, who has a decision to make. And, uh, I mean, he was a first-team pick by the coaches in the Big Ten. The sack numbers weren't there, but the athleticism has gone nowhere, and he's got more from the show. Have to imagine that's a possibility still. So if, if, if he's gone, that leaves Adiza Isaac, the sophomore backup, as your most experienced defensive end, guys. Yeah, well, that's where I think it makes it so attractive if you're a grad transfer or just any transfer. I mean, if you have the ability, there's definitely going to be uh, playing time there. That was one thing this year that I don't want to say I was disappointed, but I was kind of hopeful that we were going to see more of the Smith-Vilberts. And, you know, we saw a little bit more of Smith uh, in the Illinois game, but I was hoping we'd see a little bit more of the guys who are kind of lower on the depth chart just to see kind of what they're all about. You know, we've heard for years now that Nick Tarburton, uh, you know, how what a hard worker he is and all these things. And um, I just, with no, with no disrespect to Nick, if you haven't made the impact by this point, you wonder if he's the guy who projects as sort of a starter. So I think you're going to have to look lower on that depth chart or to that, to, to that transfer portal for, for help at the end. I mean, it really looks like a spot where they need help. 
Yeah, it's 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 unquestionably the spot. You know, I just if you look over the next year, even the next two years, is you know Bryce Mostella is a long term project. You got Smith Filbert in there. They brought in a bunch of guys last year, but I mean, I think Amin Vanover is probably the smallest one. And if you watch the game this weekend, you see that Amin Vanover's head barely fits in his helmet. That is a big freaking kid. Um, he's going to be a tackle, and it's just one of those interesting things that you know you you spent so much time uh, sort of floundering at defensive tackle recruiting. Now you're kind of over compensating for it and now you've got those guys that are that are all moving down Hakeem Beeman of course started at end now he's a tackle so there's a lot of capital tied up in those tackle spots and not so much in the defensive end so I don't think there's any question um, they're a year late on Quincy Roche who was who had a fantastic career at Temple and then went to Miami had a really good year this year that's got to be the mold that's got to be the guy that you look for a guy that's coming maybe from the Mac or somewhere else that's trying to move up and and get his name out there um, to get his draft stock up and you know Penn State had two Big Ten or first team all Big Ten defensive ends so to me the selling point is there obviously you got to find the right fit but the selling point is there to bring in a guy that come in and, and hopefully start right away. And as of right now, the only defensive lineman on board is a defensive end for the 2021 class, but not expecting it a really an immediate impact from Rodney McGraw, who, who will not be enrolling early, which complicates his climb. And, and as we said last year, you're going to have to give Bryce Mostella some time as the prospect as well. Would imagine you're looking at a fourth, fifth year guy if you bring someone in a defensive end. Worth noting as well, you talked about the leaning on some previous connections with Lovett and having him on campus as a high school player. Uh, John Scott brings some of that SEC, um, you know, regional recruiting history too. I, I wonder with after his last couple stops, maybe he has some names. I'm sure he has some names to, to present to James Franklin about possibly bringing up the Penn State and, and adding to his room. Um, guys, there's seven other seniors, and I'm a bit surprised that as again. Tuesday afternoon, have not heard from any of the other seniors one way or the other on whether they might stick around for another year or whether they're officially done with their college career. I'm going to read off the seven other names to you. Uh, you can answer this as quick as you'd like. Who do you think makes the most sense from both sides of the equation to stay at Penn State for an extra senior year? Um, Crossing Simmons off the list. You've got Jaquan Brisker and uh, Lamont Wade at safety. Tariq Castro-Fields at cornerback, offensive lineman Will Fries, Michael Mennett, defensive tackle Antonio Shelton, and, of course, defensive end uh, Shaka Tony. I'll go first. Uh, I think uh, Castro-Fields makes absolutely the most sense. I mean, he's still only 21. Um, he thought he was going to be able to p- kind of prove himself as an NFL-caliber DB this year, and obviously he was banged up and was unable to do that. So uh, I, I think there's every opportunity for him to come back and do that again, even though we know how well a lot of those young corners uh, were playing. Now, I'm saying I think it would make the most sense. Do I think that's what he's going to do? I'm just not sure. You know, maybe he thinks he's been in the program long enough. Go out and do it. But I think from uh, from the the perspective of showing what he can show to NFL scouts, to me, he makes the most sense. I, I don't think really anybody on offense makes sense. I, I think, and that's not a knock on Mennett or Fries. I think those guys are ready to go see what they can do uh, at that next level. And, and otherwise, um, you know, Brisker, I thought would make a lot of sense, but he clearly isn't going to do because he said he's going to participate in the senior bowl. Uh, so I think to me, Castro Fields is the one guy who would make absolutely the most sense. Well, the one uh, about about Brisker, just accepting the invite, he does. He's not necessarily gone, but I think it's 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 leaning that way. Right. I agree with you. I think Castro Fields makes more sense than anybody. I thought he started out the season fairly strong. And of course, you know, injuries have been a story for him and he's got to show that he's going to be healthy. 
Is he going to bet on bet on himself to do? Because I'm, I mean, he's not a combine invite right now. He's a he's a pro day guy. Is he going to bet on himself to get there? Um, you know, what's Penn State's corner room look like? Can he come back and start next year with all those guys that they have there? There's a lot of questions there with Tariq Castro Fields. Certainly more questions than answers. Even though he's got some good tape and he, he's worked on he's worked through some of that. Um, the guy that I think you know would probably benefit the most, and I'm I don't think he's going to come back, but Antonio Shelton, um, you know, kind of turned it around. Uh, in the latter half of the season. He was not very good over the first month of the season, kind of turned things around slowly, made some plays by the end of the year. And I thought he was, he was playing pretty well by the end of the year um, as was, you know, a lot of the guys on that defensive line. So I think it would benefit Shelton. I don't think he's a draft pick right now, but I think he, you know, he could, potentially be a guy that slips into the late rounds, whether or not he wants to test that for a year and try and figure things out. I don't know, but I think that there's potential there um, to bring back experience, to bring back a guy that, uh, you know, sort of turned the corner or started turning the corner by the end of his season, by the end of his career. I know he's 23 years old. That obviously is something that would come into play, but if you just look at the list there and, and Brisker's the guy that I obviously have argued strongly for in, in the past couple of weeks, but Shelton kind of makes sense. Sheldon, I think you're right. I think he was playing his best football of his Penn State career down the stretch of this season and, and particularly with the, the snaps he was receiving in this volume. But yeah, he's going to be 24 next August. I mean, he's already talked about there being not really a disconnect, but it's strange sharing the locker room with 18 year olds who are showing up to campus and being of that age and to tack on another year on campus. You know, is he, it, it, is that something that he wants lifestyle wise and stick around? I think the same thing with Shane Simmons, who is 23 years old right now. Uh, that that's that's a lot to ask to, to stick around a college program for six full years and everything that goes into that specifically if you're concerned that the pandemic policies may be in place moving forward for a little while longer and what that is going to take I'm with you guys I think three Castro Fields I'll make it three for three is the name that stands out here because of the time he missed very mysterious because he was always in uniform always warming up and then wasn't playing so I don't know what the extent uh, of that of that is he's got 40 plus games on um, of, of film and one way or the other to point to for his Penn State career it's not like he's lacking for college reps but you wonder if you might want to go give that kind of a senior season reboot he's probably the guy who says I'd like to push the reboot button more than anyone in this group. And and I think we're probably uh, all on the same page with the with the veteran uh, lineman here and, and Fry's met it and, and Shaka Tony making sense for them to move on. I'll tell you what, if anybody did themselves a favor, the last couple of games, it was Lamont Wade showing what he can do on kick return. I know that we, uh, you know, what do you, what we've seen from him on the defensive level, there's been a lot of questions about that lining up in the slot, playing safety. Is there a future for him in the NFL? I don't know, but maybe he can work his way into a special teams uh, conversation because of what he flashed the last couple of weeks. Just something to put out there. Well, yeah, he's also a young dad. So, you know, he's I think he's probably looking at, hey, let's try to make it at that pro level and, you know, kind of get on with life uh, sort of thing. But uh, hopefully he is able to do something special teams wise that are going to kind of draw the the eyes of scouts, because I, I would just wonder what sort of fit he would be in an NFL secondary. I mean, he's a little bit on the shorter side, but special teams. Yeah. I could see him making an impact. Yeah. I just well, wonder how much we'll get some I, answers. Oops, sorry. I sorry just wonder how much wrong. traffic is going to be out there in this off season. Cause you don't know, you know, you got guys that are, you know, you got the regular guys that are going to jump. Then you got the senior guys who played this year that could come back or jump. It's just for, in terms of the combine invites, in terms of the pro days and everything like that, you just wonder how many more bodies are going to be in that draft this year, if that's impacted at all. 
Great question. And we're going to talk about, uh, there's a lot of speculation looming over this about these seniors that goes across the country. Also about the 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 juniors and the redshirt sophomores on this team, guys like Jason Oway, Jahan Dotson. Um, what, what do they decide to do here? Those are things that have not been answered here uh, just a few days removed from the end of the season. We're going to answer some questions coming up after the break, uh, do a little bit of a roundtable talk about uh, defensive, offensive standouts, the freshmen, offseason questions that are facing this program as we turn the page uh, from the 2020 season. Stay with us right here on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on it's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. We're about to get into some postseason talk and um, serving up a little bit of accolades in terms of who stood out and, and what we anticipate from this offseason as well. But first, wanted to circle back because the recruiting cycle is not over yet. We talked about how the, the bulk of the work is done after early signing period, but that February signing day is still looming large. Penn State, maybe a couple more bodies to add to this class, some guys out there that we've been discussing. Sean, what do we need to know exiting the early signing period? We kind of wrapped it up Friday with with the Morrell decision, not picking Penn State at running back. He was a name out there, but got guys like George Rooks hanging out there. Uh, and, and, and you know, that's just one of, of several that I think are still on the radar for us. Yeah, George Rooks was one that went down to the wire, obviously visited Penn State last week, and then you thought he was going to push this one across the finish line. And then it kind of took a took a U-turn there, uh, which is not surprising given the way that Rooks has kind of quietly handled this recruiting. Um, but it's it's frustrating nonetheless. Penn State, Boston College, Michigan, still the teams to know in there. Um, but it seems like just not comfortable with the decision. I don't know if he's just I don't know if he's going to be one of those guys that's, you know, uh, one of those buyer's remorse guys that's afraid to make a decision all the way up until he actually has to enroll at school. But it's kind of something that's popped up in the last couple of weeks. And I still think Penn State's on top there. But what's that worth in, in this situation? It's it's really tough to uh, tough to, de- to decipher. I still think this. Uh you know, coming out of the early signing period, you're going to look at a kind of a two pronged attack. Obviously, you got the high school recruiting, still looking for an offensive tackle. They offered Josh Simmons out in California last week, still looking at defensive linemen. Rooks is obviously the guy to know, but they obviously need uh, defensive ends as well. D backs are still out there. Coaching changes may still pop up where guys decide to go, but also you kind of have to include the, the portal recruiting into all this stuff. And we talked about that a little bit earlier, um, but it's just a kind of a kind of a 180 in terms of the 
the staff's uh, approach to everything is, you know, you you take these guys that fit. Well, now you're you're probably going to add a handful of, of guys. I'm not going to go out and say that they're going to add uh, a dozen transfers or anything like that, but certainly you're not used to following that if you if you're at Penn State. And I think that's kind of the thing that they need to get out there is, hey, this is kind of not the way we've done it in the past, but we're willing to make a change. We're willing to play these guys, and we're willing to to get it out there. And I think that's going to help at certain positions. You already saw it with John Lovett, but I think there's certainly making a more concentrated effort. And I know they had a staff meeting this week where they're discussing what kind of attack there, what, what what the plan of attack was for what they were going to do with transfers. But this is a different sort of, uh, they're wading into different waters at Penn State. They haven't really typically done this. And this is going to be interesting to watch over the last or the next couple of months. Really will. And and this this recruiting cycle, you see who's you know, maybe left unsigned. Are there some guys you're surprised by? Do you wonder why they're still unsigned? All those kind of questions that surface in the current reality uh, where it's tougher to get intel than typically is. Uh, Sean, we'll keep tabs on this. Of course, Brian Doan and, and Alan True and Steve Wolfong and all those guys chiming in. As promised, we're going to get some of these signees from Penn State's class on the podcast in the next few weeks, especially prioritizing the early enrollees since once they get on campus, that's it for media access for a while. So we're going to try to, to get those conversations on here. And we'll also try to get uh, someone like Barton Simmons, the scouting director for for uh, 24-7 Sports, who was great last year, maybe come on and break down some some of the uh, things he thinks about this recruiting class, maybe some guys that are under the radar, some guys he thinks are a little bit higher than their rating, all that kind of conversation. But now the discussion, gentlemen, goes into the postseason and kind of some retrospect here. Uh, reflecting on this season is going to be difficult forever uh, doing it this fresh out of this season is uh, particularly hard to do. Um, I wrote down here offensive MVP, defensive MVP. One is more difficult to answer than the other, but the offensive MVP situation, uh, time and time again, we've addressed it. Jahan Dotson, could he be the true number one wide receiver target? Well, that was an emphatic yes. Uh, by the end of this season, he was among the Big Ten's best. More, than I would say, than the third-teamer in the conference, although it was an impressive group of wide receivers. But got it done. Got it done on special teams, especially late in the season as well with his punt returning. And just a player who has you know far more of a difficult decision to make than, than really we anticipated coming into the year. You thought he could piece it together, be that reliable guy. But the explosive nature with which he played and with which he scored down the stretch and some of the difficulty catches he made with a spotlight on him it just he took it he took it to an level that quite frankly I was not anticipating. Yeah, and you project his numbers out over 12, 13 games, and and he would have had one of the best uh seasons. He had one of the best seasons of, of a wide receiver in Penn State history. I think a couple things you have to take into account though are uh, the level of quarterback play that he was dealing with for the first half of the season, which was not very good. And yet he was still excelling, still had a monster game against Ohio State in the Big Ten defensive back of the year, uh, which I kind of scratched my head over how Jahan Dotson is a third-team pick and uh, Sean Wade is, uh, you know, Big Ten defensive back of the year. But also, the way he stepped up as a leader, you know, he has never been the most vocal guy. But after a couple of those tough losses – he was the guy who who said the things that needed to be said, you know, whether it was in the locker room or even to us in the media. So I, I think 
really, you look at that season, that's one of the best seasons ever by a Penn State receiver. I mean, you it's very difficult to compare those things because different guys were in different offenses or had different quarterbacks or were playing in different eras. But everything considered, what he did with the tools around him, I thought was just absolutely unbelievable. Like you could talk about Bobby Ingram and how great he was. And he was, he was, he was fantastic. He, he probably was the best receiver in Penn state history, but he was also surrounded by Kajana Carter, the best offensive line in school history, Kyle Brady, uh, Freddie Scott, Joe Juravicious, all those people. When you look at what Jahan Dotson was surrounded by struggling quarterbacks early in the year, your best running backs go down, your best tight end goes down. And then he's surrounded by all these young players and steps up as a role model and a leader and does it on the field and does it in the locker room. I think all those things, you know, no brainer for MVP, one of the great years by a Penn State wideout. And and you look at what his MO was coming into the season and he was a really nice number two. I mean, he was a a supplemental guy that could go out there and move the chains and all that kind of stuff. He kind of blew that out of the water this year and, you know, big play guy that you really didn't expect. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, had a sort of a, a cloud hanging over him in terms of his testing numbers coming in because they didn't match up with his track numbers, his football numbers. And, you know, he's gotten faster since he's been on campus. And I think that's the thing, you know, when you're talking about where he projects in the NFL, you have questions about you. You had questions about his speed, and then he comes out against Illinois. And I know Illinois wasn't any good, but at the same time, he just left those guys in the dust and showed that he had you know could get some some speed on tape. Um, so it's been really cool to watch that transformation. Um, we said before the year he was ready to step up and be the number one. Um, when Pat Fryermuth went out, obviously that's something that that took into uh, you have to factor in the, the target share, but it certainly delivered on those promises and and was better than I think anybody could have expected. He's got five touchdowns in his career, 60 yards or more. He had a 60-yard touchdown uh, at Illinois, at Indiana in the opener that that kind of pulled Penn State into that lead and, and was like, oh, my gosh, Penn State has life. That was a major moment of that game. Um, and additionally, the first Penn State player in history to have two catches for 70 yards or more in a single game. That happened last week and the week before, as we said, the third player in the Big Ten this century with 100 receiving yards and a punt return in the same game. These explosive, you know, these ex- all these explosive notes about these big plays. This is where I think the perception going into 2020 has totally been reshaped and redefined. And also his draft stock has, in my opinion, been redefined. Well, you think of the most memorable play from him last year. It was that Minnesota game where he got tracked mm. down and tripped up there at the end and that led to them not scoring and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's really where you, you know, kind of thought, okay, maybe he is just a possession receiver. Maybe he is that guy that, you know, is just going to move the sticks. And he just kind of blew that all away, did it as a punt returner as well. I mean, you sent this rundown and you're talking offensive MVP and I'm struggling to find a number two behind Dotson. I mean, you can obviously make an argument for, for Kevon Lee and, you know, try and find a lineman or, you know, Pat Fryermuth only played in four games, but like, this is as clear as an offensive MVP as you've had in a long, long time. There's no doubt about that. And last year we, we felt like, oh, it's KJ Hamler. And then November came and it was clearly Journey Brown by the end of it. There was there's no debate like that uh, this time around. And Mark had mentioned Jahan being the guy who's who kind of stepped up to the microphone after some of the really low points for this Penn State program. He seemed to always be available for the postgame, always handled himself a really similar fashion of the way he handled himself after a fourth straight win against Illinois. Uh, very steady in that department um, and, and just a guy who was not afraid to, to kind of make a little bit of noise. And that's not something that we expected from John Dotson. But if you guys remember, I think it was after the Maryland game, his comments turned a lot of heads, including ours, uh, after the game about 
the accountability and, and guys needing to show up every single day. And he just kind of sent one of those messages uh, through the media. And, and I don't know if that was his intention, but when you do that, there's a, a major megaphone that comes with it. And the message is going to come across in a different way than if you do it behind closed doors sometimes. And Jahan Dotson, you know, I think that's because you had at the time quarterback competition, quarterbacks losing their jobs over and over and one guy and the other. You had Pat Frymuth going down, so he's not available to talk after these games. And then the other guys in the offense doing things with the ball in their hands, they're freshmen. Kevon Lee, Parker Washington, Keandre Lambert-Smith. So <laughs> there was so much attention on this guy. I give him a lot of credit. And he said at one point, uh, you know, if he feels like the the zero and five start and and the struggles to get in the win column are a blemish on the overall year for him, um, but I tell you what, he's got to walk out of this one feeling really good about what he accomplished, and it's also a testament to Taylor Stubblefield, first year wide receivers coach, getting to work with this kid. Remember, Dotson was recruited to campus by Josh Gaddis, then encountered uh, David Corley, then encountered Jared Parker, and finally here landed on Taylor Stubblefield. So. To get from that point to where he is now, um, if this is it for Jahan Dotson, talk about going out uh, on a crescendo. Well, let me ask you guys this. How, how, what's your pitch to get him to stay? Because it is a funny thing that we're talking about a guy that, you know, we weren't sure was a number one coming into the season. Now at a position where guys, you know, get go and, you know, you probably got a dozen guys in the top, uh, you know, 60 picks or something like that because wide receivers are so plentiful. How do you get him to stay? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I think it's very tough because I don't know, as you project ahead to next year, how much better is he going to be? Uh, now, obviously, he could post better numbers, but it is is I mean, better total numbers because he'll play in more games. But I don't know what else he's going to put on tape that he didn't put on tape, especially that Ohio State game. I go back to that. That was a tough game for Penn State. And I don't know if all those Big Ten, uh, all Big Ten voters – just forgot about that game, but what he did in that game against that defense, you know, I, so, so Sean, to answer your question, I think it's very difficult. I think the only, the only play maybe you have is, uh, you know, come back to try to help them reestablish, uh, you know, being a top 10 program, that sort of thing, maybe tug at the heartstrings. Uh, but I think I, I'm not sure how much better he's going to look in a season than he looked this year. So I cheated and I asked, so uh, here's the feedback I got. You look at what, Kirk Shiraka did with Tyler Johnson at Minnesota as the number one receiver in 2018 and 2019. Tyler Johnson had uh, 78 catches in 2018 as the, I guess, number uh, distinguished number one. Rashad Bateman was obviously there, uh, and Rashad Bateman was a phenomenal player. Then he came back the next year and had 86 catches. So basically, what you're saying to Jahan Dotson, what they're saying to Jahan Dotson is, hey, come back. We're going to feed you the ball. We're going to make you a feature guy. You're going to add five pounds. You're going to get stronger. You're going to do all this kind of stuff. And we're going to move you up into, you could go higher than KJ Hamler if he came back. And that's just kind of the pitch that they're working. Excuse me. That's kind of the pitch that they're working on is to, to sort of get him that load as the unquestioned number one receiver, stretch it out over 12 games. He put up some big time numbers if he came back. And I think that that's really what they got to hammer home with him. I agree. He's got quite a decision this year, um, but certainly there's there's a lot to like when you look at the the historical numbers of the Shiraka offense. Well, I hope they I mean, pull it would, off. I hope they pull it off because I would love to cover him for another year. Let's just yeah. put it that way. I mean, he was fun to watch and he was great with us. So I hope they pull it off and I hope he comes back. But I'm I'm a little skeptical of it. Tyler Johnson was a um, an All Big Ten performer, first team in 2018, and then he came back and and he, he got a couple hundred more yards. Uh, you know, had another huge season. He went from 12 touchdowns to 13 touchdowns. He was a first team All Big Ten guy again, but he was a fifth round pick. 
this spring. Um, you know, so the, the stats, he got more Big Ten accolades. He made his mark in the Minnesota record books. But from a personal standpoint, you know, did he jump up as a as a as a draft prospect from year one to year two, or I guess junior year to senior year? In this case, uh, it was was it ultimately the ROI? Maybe he was hoping for personally from a draft prospect standpoint, a financial standpoint, long term in the NFL. I guess for Jahan Dotson, the question that's go- hanging over him and maybe everybody else is: Is college football going to to emerge out of this? Is there a light at the tunnel? Um, where, where you don't have such stringent protocols, where it's not such a sacrifice to get through a season. Because I think it's one thing to say, hey, come back. We're going to have a lot more fun on offense. You're going to take a step forward. The quarterback play is going to take a step forward. This is going to be a dynamic offense that features you, and your star is going to continue to rise. But when you throw in all the other factors of what college football is dealing with right now and all the things James Franklin has talked about, becomes a tougher pitch than going off, tr- finding a, an elite trainer, working your way to get to the point of the draft and then you're within that you're getting the paychecks and you're putting in work at the NFL level I just think it it maybe is a tougher case than ever to convince some of these guys to come back maybe the wide receiver class uh I I just don't see Jahan Dotson the way he finished the season being scared of anything uh or or anyone um he's going to get feedback from these NFL scouts like they all do but I mean, is it is it worth asking or stating that you know KJ Hamler versus him as an NFL draft prospect, where KJ was last year versus where Jahan Dotson is this year? I don't really know enough about the wide receiver class in totality. But if you're talking about being picking the same range as KJ Hamler coming off of this year, I think that's a really difficult thing to turn down, considering all the stipulating circumstances in college football. Well, you don't tell him that part. Well, I think I think he'll I think he'll find out. You're talking. You're talking about the pitch to stay. I get that. I guess uh, those are the things that that were, would run counter to it. But I, I like Mark. I would love to get a chance to see Jahan Dotson uh, play and 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 play well and and play in, in in a normal kind of setting for Penn State. And I think he's a kid who would go out there and you know build off of what he's done. I guess the good news is for Penn State is on like you know last year really you feel like you've got really good momentum in that wide receiver room. Whereas last year you, you, you lost some guys to transfer. Uh, you were hoping that Jahan Dotson would step up and there weren't really any answers. I think Parker Washington changes those dynamics a lot. Keandre Lambert Smith, you still really like what you can get out of him and the wide receiver group they're bringing in the wide receiver group they brought in last year. There's, there's a nice group down there. It's a hard decision. Uh, and, and I don't know when we're going to learn it though. Um, I mean, We'll see. I, I guess that we'll leave it at that with Jahan Dotson because we'll have a lot of time to talk about him, whether he returns or whether he goes pro. Um, for just a, a, a remarkable breakout year for him and, and really exceeding a lot of expectations in a year where it's tough to do that. Um, defensively, <laughs> this is a much more difficult conversation for the MVP guys. Uh, I, I'm inclined to go with Shaka Tony personally. Um, I, I, I feel like there were, there were times and stretches where he wasn't a major presence. But uh, I, I think he was a presence for this defense from start to finish uh, in different ways other than the stat sheet. And ultimately, when, when they needed him, he stepped up big time um, uh, late in the season. I think he, had, he put pieced together some strong play. And going back to that Indiana game, if this offense does its job on that final drive, we're remembering that as, as the day Shaka Tony shut the door on the Hoosiers. Again. Se- yeah, the second time. <laughs> Again. Well, I can't believe you didn't go with OA. So good, good restraint on your part. I know both first team, all, all got all big 10 guys. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Shaka too. I've, I've been looking for those, you know, those hidden things that don't show up on the stat sheet, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously I'm a big brisker guy and he was PF uh, pro football focused first team, all American. 
but just looking back, you know, looking at that game and then rewatching those games and stuff. I mean, he was he was good, but I don't know that he was Penn State's best defensive player. I mean, it's just the the issue with Penn State's defense is that that top guy really varied throughout the year and, and really, you know, Shaka would be one week, Owe would be the next week, Brisker would be in there. Uh, Joey Porter Jr. Uh, obviously, you know, is going to have a, a conversation for uh, to be on the all freshman team or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just look all over the place and the, and the, the, the performance individually, the performance collectively was so up and down that it was really tough to pinpoint really anybody that, that really just stood head and shoulders above anybody else. The one thing I would say about Shaka is he had two sacks on one series against Indiana, and then I don't think he had another sack until the Iowa game. So he kind of disappeared when they were really, really struggling. So you know, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb, and I know people will hate me for this, but I think if you look across the board at his stats and the fact that I thought he was kind of playing out of position, Brandon Smith, uh, he had his issues at times. But I think he progressed as the season went along and ended up posting some pretty good numbers. Led the team in tackles for losses with eight, had a couple of sacks, 37 tackles overall. Um, You know, I thought he did some good things. And ultimately, I'm not sure what you guys think, but I wonder how he would look if he wasn't playing that field backer position, if they moved him inside. I think that may be a more comfortable thing. Don't know if they have the personnel for him to be able to do that, though. Yeah. I mean, if you're drafting, so on potential on, you know, these flashes that you see, Brandon Smith's obviously near the top of that list. And I agree with you. I think he should be a will um, playing out there in space kind of took him out of those plays uh, several times this year. He's got some work to do on his game. He's got some work to do on his instincts and breaking down and, you know, finishing off plays and things like that. But he showed enough promise where you feel pretty good about him going into next year. So I, I, I agree with you. I think he should be in consideration. I don't know that he's the guy that you look to in, in terms of numbers, in terms of uh, production and things like that. But in in terms of feeling good about next year, wherever you put him, you know, be it, be it at the will. uh, I hope he's not at the Sam. That's just selfishly just kind of being frustrated watching, you know, just him kind of being out of the play that I think that, yeah, Brandon Smith gives you a lot of uh, a reason to be optimistic going into next year. Why do you think he was there, Sean? I mean, I have my ideas, but why do you think he was at, he just covers so much space. I mean, you look at the length that he replaced Cam Brown, who obviously right. is just a wacky, inflatable, flailing arm guy. Um, and, and really, Cam Brown was a pretty talented guy himself. But Brandon Smith just seems to take up those passing lanes and, and try and get out there and use that length to his advantage. Um, you know, I flip flop. He, he and Dixon in a heartbeat because Dixon has been a safety. Dixon has been a guy that's played against the pass. And you saw this weekend, Dixon needs to work on his actual linebacker skills, tackling, finishing plays. So that that would be my thing is, you know, he, he moves well, he just, he gets around and, and, you know, uses um, every aspect of his athleticism. But I think it's kind of wasted asking what, what you want from Brandon Smith versus what you're getting from Brandon Smith. You put him in the box. I think he's going to be a lot more of a linebacker than you, than you really, uh, you know, were not really were hoping for, but he'll, he'll be a lot more of what you recruited him as. Yeah, the reason I ask that is because there are so many people who are like, oh, you got to get him in the box. You got to get him. Well, who else were you going to put out there? And listen, I think one of the interesting things in the Illinois game, when they brought uh, Dixon in, they actually moved Smith into the box for for a bunch of snaps. So maybe that's what they're looking at long term. But clearly, Lance Dixon, as you noted, he has some things that he has to work on. So it's not as if you could just flip Brandon Smith and Lucada or Brooks and stick them out in that position. He was playing there because he was the one guy who could do it most effectively. Uh, that's how I kind of saw it. 
His primary backup that they had listed on the depth chart, at least, was Curtis Jacobs down the stretch of the season. And, and he's a guy that I continue to be pretty fascinated by. We, we called him the best athlete in the class coming in uh, last year and, and uh, you know, didn't didn't play extensively this year. You wonder if that's where non-conference would have been helpful to get a longer look at some of these guys. But he was on that too deep. And um, you guys kind of basically set me up for, for the transition to the next because we'll go defense because my pick is Brandon Smith for this category. Who or what improved most for this Penn State defense? And to me, it was Brandon Smith finding his footing um, and, and just looking like a like it was coming more naturally to him because there was a disconnect it felt like between his athletic abilities and his reactionary, um, you know, his, 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 his timing, I guess, on defense and his ability to go track that football and make a play off of it. There seemed to be less of a pause between those two things as the season wore on, and that's where we're able to see him end up leading this team in tack- uh, tackles for loss with eight of those um, making some of the splash plays came up with a couple sacks had a, had a, an interception along the way and um, you know it, it, the whole defensive conversation is tough because there's not a lot of turnovers produced by this so no one put up a lot of turnover numbers and there's there weren't sacks I mean there just were not many sacks out there Shaka Tony was number one with five no one else hit four so the the, the the gaudy statistics are difficult to find and then you reduce everything by three games and it makes it even more difficult but Brent Smith managed to, to fill up some key categories along Along the way, and I just get the sense that maybe that that the expectations that we had going into 2020 were, were better left reserved for for going into 2021 and his breakout year. I think everyone said, "Well, Micah did it in year two. Is Brandon Smith going to do it in year two? I I think year three, Brandon Smith could do a lot of really good things, and I think he could do enough good things where it's going to be one of those. Didn't he just get here and now he's leaving kind of situations? Yeah, looking forward to, to seeing Brandon Smith next year. The guy that I would say most improved uh, was really uh, kind of on the same arc as his position mate, Antonio Shelton, um, PJ Mustafer, uh, mm-hmm. really coming th- com- coming on at the end of the year. I thought he had a rough start to the season, kind of struggling to find his role in terms of a guy that ate up blockers and then occasionally would shake off a guy for a sack or a tackle for loss. Uh, you really expected maybe a little bit more of, of Shelton to be the guy that would eat up blocks and, and and get Mustafer free. I think once he kind of established where he was at in the pecking order, didn't try and do too much, all of a sudden that talent kind of shone through. Ended the year strongly. I thought he's a guy that, you know, I don't know if we're going to play the turn the corner game because we seemingly do that every year. Um, but it seems like going into next year, he should have a little bit of momentum, um, kind of being a more solid, dependable player there in the middle. And I'll go with Joey Porter Jr. That may be cheating a little bit because he played really well for a lot of the year, but I thought he had some moments early in the season, uh, gave up a big touchdown against Ohio State. I, I thought he had some moments that for a cornerback really could have killed his confidence, and guess what? It didn't. And then I thought he just proceeded to get better and better and better as the season went along, and by the end of the year – with Castro Fields not there. And even if Castro Fields had been there, you know, he was their most consistent, most dependable defensive back. So I like the fact that you're able to put a guy out there. And then I think I'm fairly certain he also switched from the field to the boundary. He was versatile enough to do that. So I liked what I saw out of him as the season went along. Well, in terms of looking for improvement, the defense and the offense both set the stage for, for late season improvement because of how they started the year. And I think more so on offense, um, so let's shift that over uh, over to offense. Most improved aspect or player uh, from this Nittany Lions offense in year one under Kirk Shiraka? I'll start with that. I think uh, the offensive line, without a doubt, in my view, uh, you look at the way that group played at times early in the season – 
and just was not what anybody was was quite expecting. And I, I think maybe I know I did underestimated how much of a challenge it would be not only moving to a new offense, but going with a new offensive line coach. And and that I think was more difficult than than they probably imagined. But once they shifted the pieces around and got Caden Wallace in there, moved fries inside, uh, started playing, you know, juice scrugs a little bit more uh, as a backup you know, showing that depth. I think that group really came together and was that was really kind of a group of unsung heroes as they put together that four-game uh, winning streak to end the year. Yeah, I think Phil Troutwine was the guy that, that ended the end of the season on a high note. Uh, they seem, seem to move more cohesively in one direction um, by the end of the season. Um, it's tough to pinpoint because you look at what's out there and, you know, some of those guys were, you know, obviously Jahan Dotson made the biggest leap this year, but he's your team MVP. So he's kind of exempt from this and um, not much in the in the quarterbacks. The, the running backs were, you know, new for the most part. Now you maybe expected a little bit more of improvement out of Devin Ford, but you also expected him to be in a different role going into the season. The tight ends were new when Pat Fryermuth got hurt. Uh, I am very, very excited to see Juice Scruggs next year. And that's yeah. uh, so, uh, obviously, if you follow me on Twitter, if you follow me on the site, is not a, not a hot take by me by any stretch of the imagination, but just felt like, and that doesn't happen very often when you've got a guy that's that young that gets in there and seemingly when he's in there, they take off. And that's the, certainly, I don't know if he's going to be a center next year, if he's going to be a guard next year, but to me, he looks like one of your best five and he did some phenomenal things there at the end of the year. And now I know it's a different situation with, you know, coming in and playing every other series or half the, the reps or whatever than being a full-time starter, but they, they love this kid before he got hurt. He seemed to have less ill effects of that injury than I think anybody thought that he would have. And, and I'm excited to see his future. <laughs> you you have shared some video that was pretty standout with, with, uh, with juice crook and he has gone from, Oh, that's a nice story. He's back playing football to like, we need to see more of this guy playing football because he can make a really positive impact on Penn State's offensive front. Really curious about that. I think Brent Strange is another guy who I think really started to find a groove as the season wore on. You mentioned his his, his uh, uh, prowess as a blocker, which has really stood out for a guy who's put on a bunch of wait during his first year and a half on campus, going on two years on campus. And uh, we think we think he can be quite a passing threat as well. Um, you know, I think I'm going to go with the wide receiver room for this one. I know outside of the top two guys, Parker Washington and Jahan Dotson, uh, there was you know a pretty significant gap in terms of, of production. You didn't see a Daniel George or a Cam Sullivan Brown make a big step in their career as veterans. You didn't see Keandre Lambert Smith, uh, you know, make a major leap as a freshman, but he, he was pretty reliable when the ball was set in his direction, did some things with it in his hands, um, gave you a glimpse of why there is excitement about him. But to have the freshman productivity as a true freshman productivity that you got out of Parker Washington, which is uh, essentially at a different level than what Penn State has seen for a first year player. And then Jahan Dotson, of course, turning into just uh, a, a star, an absolute star at the position. It, it, it had a long way to come at wide receiver and, and it got there. I mean, this is a spot where we have looked to as just a total mystery box the last couple of years. KJ Hamler was the only player in each of the past two seasons to go over 25 catches out of that receiver room. You had guys transferring out. Um, you, you were missing on, on the recruiting trail with some players. And I think that narrative has changed. We talked about it a lot with what they're doing recruiting wise and building toward the future. But I just think in general, it wasn't a weakness by any means. There were not any kind of uh, uh, it wasn't a, a drops, drops, drops or or guys looking out of place. I, I, I got to say, really impressed by Taylor Stubblefield year one. And it's something we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast. So I'm going to circle that position, although it really comes down to the top two guys in that room. 
I just think that position had a long, long way to come. And, and I, I think I'm a little bit surprised by, by how far it was able to, to go in a year like this. Yeah, no arguments there. I mean, they they certainly still have some work to do. But you look at that skill that skill those skill players as a whole. You you also align them with the scholarship chart and where they sit with how many years they have left outside of Jahan Dotson. That's a pretty good group right there. And I know it's going to be crazy because you're going to have Brenton Strange as a third year freshman and all that kind of stuff next year. But at the same time, the the talent is there. There's a lot to like, um, and you look like you've got some long term stars catching the ball, running the ball. We're going to talk about more freshmen in a second, but quickly, special teams, what stood out to you guys? Because this was a group that was kind of a roller coaster ride. I think Jordan Stout had a couple games where he was struggling in the punting department and the kickoff department. Aska stood out there, the, the road trip to Michigan that they ultimately won. Uh, there were some struggles there that on both occasions set the opponent up. Jake Pinnaker had, had a pretty brutal start. Didn't finish how he would have liked with the miss last Saturday, but eight consecutive makes. To me, I think the conversation is these guys got to return some balls on the punt team and, and the kickoff team, and really good things happened the last couple of weeks of the season. Yeah, we finally start, started to see some of the wow factor in special teams. I think for most of the year, it was just kind of like, oh, okay, they're they're generally getting the, the the job done. I mean, they're not turning the ball over. They did in a couple instances. Uh, the kickers, after a slow start by Pinnaker, uh, kind of leveled things off, but there was nothing popping. And then finally, the last couple of weeks, you know, you see Dotson do some things. You see Lamont Wade. And, you know, I just I wonder if if there's a way they can get that to continue ride that momentum into next year, you know, maybe block some kicks, do some of those types of things. So to me, the wow factor kind of showing itself late in the year was a positive. I think they really have to build on it, though. I think it's a positive. I also think it's pretty darn frustrating when you take into account mm. that you kind of handicap or just I guess handicaps is not the word kneecapped yourself in terms of what you were trying to do on special teams because you were so scared of what was going on on offense. Um, and you didn't want to, you know, have a returner fumble the ball or, you know, misplace something. And, and then all of a sudden it turns around as another turnover, not one, uh, you know, that where your quarterback was responsible for it. So I think that's pretty frustrating there. I thought Stout would be better as a punter. I, I you know, he's got, pretty darn good hang time. Just got to turn that angle into uh, into something more with yardage. Um, I'm going to go, why not? Drew Hartlaw, that guy. I love that guy. He's He's been phenomenal as a coverage guy. He's been a, a glue guy. I think he's going to be a, probably a special teams captain next year. And and he's definitely a guy that embodies what you look for in a walk-on. He's been, he's been tremendous. So um, I'll go with that because, you know, special teams were so far up, you know, so far up and down this year. Um, so obviously ended on a high note, which is great. But at the same time, pretty frustrating when you take into account all those, uh, you know, those not points, but yards they left in the field. Uh, you talk so much about how important uh, uh, field position and things were. And you, you saw a lot of fair catches. You saw a lot of things that, you know, you really weren't as aggressive as you maybe could have been. And that could have, you know, tipped the scales in one of those early games. I've seen a, a, a few players say that they're ready for next year, their their true freshman season. And I think it was uh, maybe Curtis Jacobs and Kazai Holmes or Kevon Lee basically saying, hey, this was our freshman year, but this was essentially a freebie in terms of the NCAA eligibility. So it, it's icing on the cake. And, and that's, that's an interesting way to view it. And, and I'm sure... In a lot of cases, uh, there were things gained this year uh, and mental mental maturity gained that otherwise, in normal circumstances, maybe wouldn't have been gained because of what you had to do and the accountability this all required and Penn State getting to these nine games without significant outbreak issues. But 
long term, guys, what what are we thinking offensively, defensively? I mean, you can just run down the list of freshmen from the running back spot to the tight end spot. You got Caden Wallace at right tackle for the final half of the year, um, and then defensively, the the cornerback room with Daquan Hardy and Joey Porter both carrying freshman status. Up front, Akeem Beeman, a, 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 a redshirt freshman, I should say. Um, guys like Curtis Jacobs also involved there. Um, I mean, who out of this group do you feel like, based on the circumstances of their position and what you've seen from them, you can kind of check off that box and say a year or two from now, they're going to be legitimate foundational stars for this program? Well, I think Parker Washington may already be there. This is a guy that's going to set records at Penn State eventually. And, you know, that's based on volume and that's based on production. He came in as ready as any receiver that we've seen in a long, long time. And and honestly, there's people in the program that still think that key Andre Lambert Smith can end up as a better player than him and as, as a potentially higher draft pick. So I uh, got to be excited there. I mean, you just go down the list there. You, uh, all of Penn State's contributing skill players by the end of the year, Sands, Jahan, Dotson, were young guys. You had the two the, the two tight ends with uh, Theo and Strange. Um, and then, you know, the running back sort of w- was, you know, not really the plan, but you've you got Kevon Lee producing. Keziah Holmes looked better than he has in, at the end of the season. So, I mean, you're just, you're looking up if you're that offense uh, in, in terms of the skill position, guys. Yeah, and I'll I'll throw out the the name that you did, Tyler Caden Wallace. The I think this season was huge for him. Uh, they finally made the move, and I thought it was really important to get him out there. But not only get him out there, then you move Fries inside. And I know people are up and down on Fries and his performance, but to have a veteran like that playing alongside of you for for however many games that was, five games or whatever it was. I think that was just a huge part of his learning curve. And to be able to use this as a season where he's not losing any eligibility, uh, I just think he's set up for some big things in the future. I think he'll be good next year. I think in two years, he's going to be really, really, really good. Uh, a guy who really projects up to that next level uh, if he stays healthy. But I, I really liked what I saw. Not perfect, but a great, great chance for him to kind of build and, and set that foundation. Two silver linings from veteran absences, I think, are at tight end with Theo Johnson getting the time he got down the stretch. I really think he has a tremendous career ahead of him. And then uh, in the cornerback room with, uh, with Tariq Castro-Fields absent, Daquan Hardy, he he had some ups and downs. There's no doubt about it, but we saw him start to play more at the nickel. I think by the end of the season, you come away feeling pretty good about what you get out of Daquan Hardy, a kid who was your last pickup of the 2019 recruiting class kind of adds to the excitement about that cornerback room. Um, on the flip side, we're talking about players with potential progressing. How about guys that are facing some questions uh, going into this offseason? It's a difficult conversation. We've had some make or break, can- or you know, now or never candidates in the past is the way we phrased it. Uh, but to me, offensively, because of what we talked about that tight end room, it's hard not to put focus on Zach Koontz and, and, and what lies ahead for him, along with a couple wide receivers uh, and Daniel George and Cam Sullivan Brown, because they are in what uh, four year four year five they'll be going into. Talked about the young talent there, so just some names that pop out to me on offense there. Yeah, obviously the the, the receivers. Um, l- listen, they're in a tough spot. I mean, they clearly were passed on the depth chart by by true freshmen, and you know by the end of the year, Cam Sullivan Brown was was barely playing. I think he had one catch in the final game. Uh, when he was getting out there, they were they were kind of running the ball. So I think those guys have some decisions to make. Uh, the other guy on offense, I would say, is C.J. Thorpe. I mean, you know, granted, 
there was some sort of uh, medical pr- problem the last few weeks. We don't know what it was. This according to James Franklin. But even before that, he had been bumped from his starting role. And, you know, he was a guy who before the season I projected as, as being a guy who was going to break out. And, and it didn't happen. And, and I just wonder, uh, you know, here we are a few days after the season ended. You know, I wonder if there has to be a decision made on on where he's going to actually play. You know, could he be a better uh, defensive tackle? But then we go back to early the earlier discussion, and defensive tackle seems to be a place where they're sort of you know facing some serious numbers uh, in in terms of how many guys are there or how many guys who have grown into it. But I think C.J. Thorpe is a guy who has certain things that he does really really well as an offensive lineman, but he's just not been able to put it all together. And now you're looking at a guy who's a veteran in the program and it's kind of a a now or never situation for him. Kudos to your guys on your picks, but we're overthinking this one. The, the, the questions surrounding the quarterback position. I'm there's no bigger off season storyline here. I mean, that's the, they have to be better. They have to give uh, Kirk Shirock and this offense a chance to run Kirk Shirock's offense, which they did not do this year. Um, the elephant in the room there, they certainly have to be better. And I'm very curious to see how this is handled because, you know, you, you know about the loyalty of, of Franklin and everything, but also, you know, it's, it, it's been pretty obvious that they're, that's something that really held this team back. So not sure which direction it's going to go in. Not sure if, if you can afford to find out if one of those guys can, can turn the corner, whether it be in spring ball or the summer. I mean, you get to next August and you haven't made any changes or, or anything like that. You know, you're going to find yourself in this exact same spot. And that's not good. That's not where you want to be. So in terms of what you're, where the most questions are, to me, it starts a quarterback. It pretty much ends a quarterback as well. We can split hairs on, on offensive linemen and, you know, backup tight ends and everything that all we want. But at the end of the day, if it's not going to be the quarterback, it's not going to be a team that's going to be in position for success next year. Yeah. You know, it jumped out to me, uh, guys, I'm not sure if you picked it up on, uh, if you could, if people, if fans picked it up on, on TV, uh, but when Sean Clifford fumbled against Illinois, James Franklin went off on him. I mean, he went off on him. And this is a coach who we very rarely see doing that in the course of a game. And I think, Sean, it speaks to, to your point that they're at a point now where, okay, enough is enough. You know, if you're going to make that mistake, and, and Levis screwed up something late in the game, and, and Franklin went off on him there as well. So I do think that they're at a point where, you know, kind of enough is enough. The one thing I will say, and maybe the reason why Tyler and I went in different directions, is by the end of the year, I thought Clifford for the last few games was playing significantly better. And can he springboard that into next year? Who knows? But without a question, you're, I, I agree with you, Sean, that he is the guy or they, that is the position that they have to get better production from. We talked about when I mean, it was the point when Clifford was benched coming out of the Nebraska game and, and Levis was your guy for the Iowa game. We, we asked the question on this podcast, Mark, will Sean Clifford take another snap at quarterback or if Will Levis runs into trouble, do you see what you have in Taquan Roberson? I mean, it was at that point, 10 turnovers through five games, a kid who looked lost in this offense. Uh, and, and just was not doing you any favors was, was by the end of the year, you're right. Um, was there anything he could have done in the last four games to, to wash that taste out of your mouth first five and convince you that he should be your outright starter going into this offseason? I'm not sure. Uh, he did a great job uh, comparatively protecting the football, only one interception and that one fumble that you mentioned over the course of the four games, that is a dramatic decrease in, in, 
and and giving the ball to the other team. And it was a big help to getting them to that four game win streak. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I'm very curious just to, to learn what the mindset is in that room right now. You've got Will Levis, by the way, who's going to be 22 years old next June. You know, the, the clock's ticking on him. I know the eligibility clock technically is not ticking on him right now. But if Sean Clifford's still around and Sean Clifford's still your starter, is Will Levis content to to be the guy that, that comes in and gives you something different and, and runs the ball a bunch? Or does he want to see what he can do at taking the reins over as a quarterback? There's questions there. You don't know what you have in the young players at this point. Taquan Roberson didn't throw a pass in a game this year. Micah, Micah Bowens we didn't see any of. And, and then Christian Veyu's coming in in January after not participating in his senior year of high school football. So you're not seeing any clear-cut signs from the young portion of this quarterback room. I don't know. I mean, can Kirk Shiraka, you know, when they do their interviews or however, however they want to put a punctuation mark on this season with personnel plans and, you know, are they saying Sean is our quarterback? You know, Sean's QB1. I know Sean has that mindset. You can tell the way he carries himself after some of these final games. He thinks he, he, thinks he should be the guy. He thinks, he, you know, that, that's who he is for this team. The question is, how do they assess the transfer portal? If they stay with what they've got in the scholarship department at quarterback, I, I think it's I think it's fair to wonder who's going to push Sean Clifford for that starting role. And um, maybe it will be a surprise if someone does it. If we don't have spring practices, I hope we do. That's going to complicate the situation because, uh, again, for what Sean did in the positive light for those final four games, it was a lot more about being able to lean on the ground game as well getting better play of the offensive line. They protected the, they protected him very well. A lot of the, the issues with the with him going down in the backfield, I feel like that was a, a lot of self-induced issues with, with his feet and, and him finding himself in spots and sensing pressure that maybe wasn't there yet. Um, it's just it's hard to erase those, far, those uh, first five games. And even the sample size you got in the final four games is that quarterback play enough to get you where you want to go, which is out of that 9-10 win realm and into playing Indianapolis and, and beyond. Yep, that's a it's a great way to to put it. I'm curious what uh, you know. Quarterback rooms never stay the same. I mean, it's it, it is no. very very rare that those uh, you know those they look the same from year to year. I mean, Michael Johnson Jr. was here last year. I mean, you just it, it doesn't happen. So you wonder about Levis. You wonder if you can you know just kind of walk that line with Clifford. And if you decide that's the way that you're going to go, you're kind of putting your program in purgatory for nine months, at least nine months, maybe more. And that's that's a dangerous situation to be in if you're trying to take that next step. So that's, uh, I mean, that to me is the biggest question in the program. That to me is the biggest thing that we're going to talk about over and over and again for the next nine or 10 months. Um, and, and it's one that really they can't afford a misstep on. I think I, we have to break out the air quotes here. I think there are going to be some difficult conversations hmm in that quarterback room over, you know, whenever, if it's after the holidays, if they have happened already, who knows? But yeah, there definitely are going to be some difficult conversations, probably going both ways. Franklin has discussed the transparency being so important for him and his players and the players' parents. And that's how he operates with this program. That's how he wants to operate. You know, you wonder what the conversation is. Are you, are you talking to Sean and Will and saying, we have a list of guys that we're going to pursue on the quarterback transfer market. We plan on doing that. We don't want you to hear it through reports that lines 24 seven or reports from ESPN that this is happening before we tell you straight up, or did they not, or did they not have that conversation until things materialize to the point where a guy is maybe ready to fully commit to you from the transfer. There's a lot of, of, of dynamics in play here from, from the ego standpoint. And that's so important at quarterback 
confidence standpoint. And again, Kirk Sharaka didn't personally recruit any of these guys to campus, with the exception being Christian Bayou, who shows up in, in about a month from now. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think the other spot you look at uh, as as a room collectively, will it get the deck shuffled a little bit? Are, are guys going to take a, a big step forward where they need to? Is that linebacker? You know, that that's a spot where losing Micah Parsons when he lost him in August that really set you back. Now you've got a full offseason knowing that that he's not part of the equation. You think you know who you have on board, and and so where do you find the paths to success? Is it is it shuffling the deck, moving Brandon Smith into a box situation? What is your plan with Jesse? Luketa and Ellis Brooks, two guys that are going to be, uh, you know, fourth and fifth years on campus, respectively, at this point. How much can Curtis Jacob move forward? How much can Lance Dixon move forward? What about uh, the other couple of four stars they brought in last year? And Zariah Fisher, Tyler Elsden, is Fisher truly a linebacker for you long term? Is Tyler Elsden ready to take a step? Charlie Catcher hasn't been able to stay healthy. Um, you know, there's a lot going on there. And I just have a sense that that starting lineup next year, it could look different and not just from a name standpoint, but where guys are on the field and, and we'll all be watching that closely. Yeah. I think we flip the, the quarterback situation and say, you look at that linebacker situation, uh, you know, especially with Lucetta and Brooks. I mean, we taught, had a chance to talk to Brent Pry a, a couple weeks ago and he was about as critical of, of the group in general, but he was critical of, you know, constructive criticism, but of each of those guys kind of by name, uh, so I, I don't think anybody, even though they end up being the two leading tacklers, I don't think anybody looks at that, the performance of those two guys as, as being something that was at the standard that they need from those two positions. So they have to figure out if those guys are going to be the guys who are able to get it done. Are they able to get better at this point of their careers? Or do you try to work things, move things around and, uh, and come up with a different linebacker lineup? But I think those two, those are the two people who are really – in the uh, kind of in the crosshairs here or that we're focusing in on. Yeah. They've recruited, of- they've recruited that room so well too. It's not like you lose Michael Parsons. There's nothing left. I mean, you, you put that with, with running back and tight end in terms of building that depth of, of young talent that was highly, highly evaluated coming out of the high school level. We've seen other, other positions lose top talent off uh, off the depth chart be able to recover and balance it out. We, we didn't really see the impact of some of those younger linebackers this year. Yeah, but I think the difference there, and we've compared this to quarterback, is that I think the answers are already in that room, and and we're fairly sure of that. I think Curtis Jacobs is going to be really good at Penn State. I think Brandon Smith, you know, you move him to Will, and you've got an opportunity to get Smith in there at the Will. You get Jacobs out there at the Sam, possibly Dixon out there at the Sam as well. He still has some improvement to go. Got to figure out who your Mike is next year, whether that be Jesse Lucchetta. But I mean, maybe Jesse Lucchetta gets bigger moves to DN because you've got a, a bunch of needs at DN as well. Zariah Fisher's in that same boat, but you you absolutely cannot repeat what you had this year at linebacker. I mean, there's no question um, about it. It's just like quarterback, where if you have that that performance at linebacker next year, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the the ceiling of this team is because it's just it, it was that glaring and that um, clear to me that they were going after that second level of the defense. So, but I do think that the guys that are going to fix that problem now that may be something to deal with two or three years down the road, but the guys that are going to fix that problem, the Jacobs and the Smiths, they're already in that room. And I believe you called Kobe King the most college-ready member of this recruiting class when you were going through your uh, superlatives. I don't know if that means what that means for 2021 for him, but if you're getting an immediate impact kind of guy possibly – 
some physical limitations there with Kobe King, but he'll yeah. be on campus in a few weeks too, right? Yeah, he'll be on campus in a few weeks. In terms of college ready, I think he's probably high floor was probably the way that I should have um, put that because he's a guy that's probably closer to maxing out physically, but just in terms of instincts, in terms of a guy that can, you know, I think catch up to the speed of the college game, that'll be fine. I don't think he's going to have an impact as a true freshman, especially with guys like, you know, Tyler Elston coming off that red shirt and, and Zariah Fisher coming off that red shirt. And then of course the veterans in front of him, that's kind of a, of a log jam of a different sort. Um, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a situation where they're going to have the the numbers that, that I think that will be an advantage for them. Uh, again, I, I don't know whether Smith will move. I, I would move him personally, um, but that takes care of that, that will spot. And then at the Sam spot, I think Curtis Jacobs has a, has a very bright future there as well. And because of the NCAA rules, you will have five former four or five star linebackers on this roster next year who carry freshman designation. That includes a third year freshman and Lance Dixon. Get used to hearing that term this offseason, third year freshman because of the circumstances. Guys, we covered a bunch here. I know I have more written down. The Noah Kane recovery from an injury, that'll be worth monitoring shuffling on the offensive line maybe um we've we've had on a lot of this the transfer market is going to be a supremely important what is this year actually going to look like will there be spring practices can franklin find a better way to manage things with his family that is clearly taking priority as well going into this offseason anything we missed that you feel like we need to touch on if not don't worry we've got a long offseason ahead the silence tells the story, <laughs> Tyler. Go, I think we touched on a lot of stuff. We did. We did. And 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 as a reminder, this is the only podcast you're getting this week. So maybe split this one into sections. If you come this far, you're, you've made it. Um, we got <laughs> one thing to get to. Five-star mailbag. And, and this one ties in perfectly with the conversation today, guys. Uh, the question is, which Penn State player who was not a starter this season has the best chance to break through as a big-time contributor in 2021. I'll pass it along to you. Whoever wants it first, go ahead and take it. I'm going to jump on that one and go with Adisa Isaac. I think that the, the you know at defensive end, it's ripe for the taking. He showed some nice things, probably played a little bit less than we would have expected this year. Um, Tony and, and Owe were out there a good bit, but I, I think Isaac has all the potential in the world, still going to see some good things. And I think his best football is ahead of him. Um, you know, I could have gone with Curtis Jacobs, who I talked about in the last segment, but Adisa Isaac, to me, in terms of if you're looking for a, a fresh breakout that maybe not a lot of people see coming, I think is going to, is going to do it next year defensive end I'll go with Juice Scruggs I know you hit on that earlier Sean I think it was um I really liked what I saw when he got in there and and you know I think Tyler you touched on it as well we all touched on it the fact that he was coming from where he was coming from after having missed so much time and played at the level he did when he got in there this year I think the big question about Juice is do they keep him at guard or do they move him well not really move him because he has been repping at center but is he the guy who steps in uh, at center for, for Michael Menon, in which case I think you could be looking at a guy who makes a significant impact. Uh, but to see his story, I think it's just going to get better and better and better and and uh, looking forward to seeing what he can do next year. Yeah, I was thinking Scruggs as well. I, I kind of got my eye on Jair Brown too out of the Juco level. And, and this year was the backup back there in the defensive backfield, maybe st- seeing him step up. But I'm going to – I I can't get Theo Johnson out of my head because of what we saw the last couple of weeks, the aggressiveness, uh, the, the ability as a, as a pass uh, target, catching the ball in traffic in some situations, taking some hits, holding on to the football. I just feel like he's too supremely talented. And this is a kid, remember, showed up early. Not only was he not going to get spring ball because of the pandemic, 
pandemic that rolled in, he wasn't going to be healthy enough for spring ball. So where he is right now, uh, getting meaningful reps as your second tight end, and we saw him quite a bit. Uh, I like this to serve as a launch pad for what he has in store in, in 2020, uh, 2021, I should say. You've got Khalil Dinkins coming in there as well as that Koontz is, 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 is going to be involved, we'd imagine. But I, I just think Theo Johnson, whether he's starting or not, or whether they go two tight end set uh, with regularity, I like his opportunity to be a real threat um, and and as a run blocker as well. So that's where I'm going to go with that answer. It's a great question, and, and it's a perfect way to cap off this episode. And, guys, we appreciate it. Um, there is, I think, an uh, hour and 40 minutes of content here for people to to sift through and, and skip what they don't like and focus in on what they want to like. There's a lot. There's a lot here, and uh, it kind of just reflects on that we're entering. We just exited a season unlike any other, and it kind of feels like we're entering an offseason that's going to feel a lot different than what we're accustomed to as well. Yeah, you got to wrap this bad boy up and put it under the tree. It's been a, a long podcast. I think I hope everybody got their money's worth out of this one. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been a lot of good topics, a lot of good discussion. We appreciate having Mark on, as always, uh, to talk about just the whole thing. I mean, this this season has been, I mean, it feels like forever ago that it started, and then it feels like forever ago. You know, you mentioned that Ohio State game and not watching Sean Wade, and I'm like, you know what? I really don't remember much about that Ohio State game either. Maybe I blocked part of that out, you know, uh, just coincidentally. Um, but but it's just it, it's been such a crazy season. Um, I think you guys have done a tremendous job covering it. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we're hoping for better next year. We're hoping I, for twelve I, games. Yeah, I, I sent these guys a text saying uh, congratulations on making it through nine games in nine weeks and signing day and COVID and everything else. So, but listen, hey, we got the season, so that was tremendous, and uh, just want to wish everybody a happy holiday. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everybody for listening for this episode. We we hope uh, it's a good holiday, if albeit a, a different holiday season. Uh, and thanks to everybody who stuck with us since March when this thing really got thrown for a major loop and we didn't know if we'd see one, much less nine Penn State games here over the course of 2020. You heard our take on it. You're going to hear a lot more coming up. The Lions 24-7 podcast at lions247.com. Plenty of coverage coming your way. Uh, appreciate it as always. On behalf of Mark and Sean, I'm Tyler Donahue. We'll talk to you real soon. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.